This is Maine Coast Doc Talk, a podcast bringing you the latest news and stories from Maine's working waterfronts. This podcast is brought to you by the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association. I'm your host, Ben Martens. Welcome to Maine Coast Doc Talk. Today we have a fantastic interview with Johnny Shockley. He's a Chesapeake Bay blue crab waterman who has turned into an oyster aquaculturist and who's now doing some innovative stuff around pollution cap and trade system that Maryland has that's really going to benefit local fishermen. I think it's, it's a great way to clean up the bay and also get some revenue streams back to local oyster growers in the Chesapeake. So very interesting story out of him in terms of how he got into it, what was happening in the Chesapeake. And I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned about what we can do in Maine with fishermen to solve some problems that we have. But I felt like we would be remiss to not give a quick update on what's happening on Maine's coast right now. We're settling into month three or four, infinity months, I don't know, it feels like forever, of the COVID-19 pandemic and economic crisis that we're experiencing up here. And so I brought in um, Monique Coombs, who is our Marine Programs Director at Maine Coast Fishermen's Association, to just do a quick update of what's What's happening on the docks in Maine and what's happening with seafood? So, Monique, first, how you doing? I'm doing okay. How are you, Ben? Yeah, I'm I'm trapped at home with a two year with a three year old and a ten month old. It's you know, life is just perfect right now. Yeah, yeah. Oh, at least the sun's out. It was wicked foggy earlier. Yeah, and it's no. beautiful out now. I, I would definitely say that my mood has improved as the weather has, and that we can get outside a little bit. And you know, one of the things I always joke about with my friends is like. With fishermen, like you can tell when things are bad out on the water because they get in bad moods and I start getting angry phone calls from them when they're trapped on shore too long. And I feel like I'm in that stage with like my marriage and life where I'm like snapping a little bit because I've been stuck on shore too long. The proverbial shore. But I wanted I wanted to just chat about like what's happening on the docks, what's happening, you know, we've we've been hearing a lot about seafood prices and direct to consumer work that's happening around around Maine and the country, but I, I think a, a little dash of reality of what's actually happening uh, is is important for everybody to be thinking about right now. Yeah, so I mean, there's a couple of things right now. We're not sure if and when or how much fishermen will be able to fish this summer. We don't know what the market is. We don't know what it's going to look like when restaurants open. Um, we don't know what the prices are going to be, fuel costs, boat prices. I mean, just across the board, there's a lot of uncertainties. I and mean, I think right now, everybody's still hoping for the best, but there's a lot of um, stress and uncertainty in the industry right now. And I don't know how quickly that'll come back, but one thing that consumers can do is to keep trying to seek out local fish and lobster, whether it's um, direct off the boat from lobstermen or businesses like Gulf of Maine Sashimi or Downey Stayboat that can connect people with fishermen in a way that's uh, safe and legal, that those are some important things to do. And then as silly as it sounds, doing things like signing up for Maine Coast Fishermen's Association's newsletter, um, following fishermen on social media, showing them support, those are also ways that are sort of low-hanging fruits that people can do to sort of interact and engage and support Maine fishermen. Monique, I've trained you so well to constantly be plugging our stuff. That's, uh, thank and you. the newsletter, man, every, everywhere. Please sign up for a newsletter. It's great. It really is, though, but it, it is. I mean, you see a lot of local businesses doing that right now. doesn't mean you have to buy everything, but show them some support so, you know, that they know that you want their business around when this is all over. And that goes for restaurants, too, you know, chefs and food service, bartenders, anybody yeah. in the food industry. 
So talk to me a little bit about fish and, and lobster, right? So when we first kind of started this, there was all the fear that the prices were going to collapse. And we saw that happen for monkfish. We saw that happen for some fin fish, especially the flats. Lobster prices surprisingly held pretty solid for a while, but now we're starting to see the price come down. I, I think that that's some of the places where people feel confused at times about what's what's happening with the value of seafood. And we're even hearing it from fishermen, right? They're like, I thought this was going to happen. And you know, the supply and demand of, of the seafood chain is just, it is confusing, but I'd love to just th- throw a little bit of information behind what people are seeing, whether it's, you know, on Facebook or what fishermen are talking about, or even what they're seeing in their local markets. Yeah, I don't know how to answer that really, other than to say you're right. It is confusing. I mean, there's a number of things to consider when you're thinking about the uh, price of lobster, and it's different if you're getting it from, excuse me, a retail market, a grocery store, or directly from the lobsterman. You have to think about market demand and supply, and there's sort of a, a few things at work right now that are impacting the price, and that is that there's not there's a little bit more of a supply there's not as huge of a demand and the price is going down i think for some of the lobstermen that are selling directly to consumers their price is able to hold a little bit steady but that's not to say that there's not some um, compassion fatigue because like you said we're three months into this and so i think everybody's um, starting to think about what next month looks like, their budgets, um, and things like that. Maine's known for lobster, but there's a lot of other species that come across the docks as well. A bunch of our fishermen have been told, don't even land monkfish, because that's a a market that tends to go overseas in the Southeast Asia, and we don't have a lot of um, capacity to move fish. The other one, I had a phone call today with a fisherman who this summer, he was planning on catching tuna. And the tuna market's the same thing. You know, 50% of that ends up in you know, restaurants in the tri-state area, and then the other 50% go overseas, and both of those markets are horrible. So he's sitting around trying to think about his summer and doesn't know if he's going to be able to go and catch tuna. And if he does catch them, who's going to buy it? That's, that's a big fish that's hard to distribute locally, and it's a sustainable piece of the seafood chain right now. It's, you know, there's been a lot of great, great news around the, the bluefin tuna fishery in terms of that stock coming back and, and building it back up with a lot of support from fishermen. But now we have another great product coming across the docks of Maine. I think last year, 500,000 pounds of tuna were landed in Maine. Where's it going to go? What are we going to do? What's the, you know, where can we go from here? Yeah, I'm not sure. And I think some of that goes back to um, reminding people that Maine does have a variety of seafood. Lobster is king and it has been for a little while now, but it hasn't been forever and it won't be forever. And so it's really important. I would put some onus on the consumer um, with that a little bit right now to be asking those questions. And so if you're signing up for our newsletter or looking around on social media, asking the questions about halibut and interestingly enough with some of the Facebook groups that we administer to help connect consumers um, with fishermen is we're still, we're actually getting questions about Maine shrimp which I thought was just, you know, common knowledge that we don't have a main shrimp fishery right now, but apparently it's, it's not. And that's unfortunate. Unfortunate we don't have a shrimp season because I know I've missed main shrimp. But it's also unfortunate because that really just to me highlights how disconnected even Mainers are from what our fishermen are catching and how sustainable our fisheries are in the country, but in Maine specifically. And, and that's a bummer, I think. And so I would say, you know, it is up to consumers to, to, to seek out 
information about Maine seafood and be willing to go buy it and eat it and try things that they haven't had before. No, I think I think that's a great point. Try some try something new. Uh, that's what we always try bluefin um, tuna. A lot of people don't necessarily consider it. It's delicious. Thank you for the updates. You've done a good job plugging. But is there anything else you want to plug about some of the things that you've been working on that you think you'd love people to just pay some attention to? I sure do. So Rebecca Spear and I, Rebecca is also married to a fisherman. And for anybody that's listening that doesn't know, I'm married to a fisherman. And she and I are working together to collect some seafood recipes to put into a seafood cookbook that we are going to sell and then donate all of the proceeds back to the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association. We are sort of loosely basing this idea on a cookbook that was done back in 1986 by the Maine Fishermen's Wives Association. They did a, a seafood cookbook to sort of highlight all of the work that their organization was doing and promote Maine seafood. And I think because people are interested in local seafood right now and interested in learning about Maine's fisheries, that it's a great time to do that again. So if people want to send me their seafood recipes and stories and photos, I would love to, to get them. My uh, MCFA email address is monique at maincoastfishermen.org. And then we're hoping to get it printed and available so that people can buy them for Christmas presents. Perfect. Monique, thank you so much for taking some time. We'll talk soon. Thanks. Okay. Thanks. Johnny, thank you for joining me today on Main Coast Doc Talk. Uh, you are a waterman, previous waterman. Do you still have to call yourself a waterman down on the Chesapeake? Yeah, well, I always call myself a waterman. I, I am a third generation waterman of the Chesapeake. I'm no longer commercial fish. I'm, all, I'm now um, exclusively into oyster aquaculture. Oyster aquaculture. So uh, a waterman from the Chesapeake Bay who is into aquaculture and also into a, a nutrient trading system that's being developed to help clean up the Chesapeake Bay. And so I would love to hear a little bit about how you as a waterman got into aquaculture, what you saw as the opportunity down on the Chesapeake. And then I'd really like to explore a little bit how the, the system was created and how it's, it's working to be basically trading nutrient credits on the Chesapeake. So yeah. I'm going to turn it over to you. Tell me a little bit about who you are. Well, okay. So I'm third generation waterman. Grew up on Hooper's Island, a little island that sits on the eastern shore of the Chesapeake Bay. We we are a community of fishermen there. And so my father was, was a, a waterman and his father. And I, I got into, I had really had no choice. I, I, I just, I had a choice, but I had no choice because it got in my blood early as a child to, to work on the water. I spent my childhood on the boat with my dad. Mainly blue crabbing was our biggest fishery, and also oyster commercial, uh, wild oyster, public fishery oystering. So for the the blue crab fishery, and and what kind of what kind of boats were you guys working off of? What type of gear were you using on on those those vessels? Yeah, so we had two two forty forty three foot Chesapeake Bay work boats, V bottom work boats, the traditional box sterns. My my, my grandfather on my mom's side was a boat builder, so. We built our own boats. Um, I built my boat um, right out of high school. It's 43 foot. I still have it. And uh, we we had several different deep powering systems, Detroit's in the early days. And then we, we went to John Deere, 450 horsepower each. It was like a three-man um, crew, a three-man per boat crew. 
and we would fish eight, 900 pots per boat. We also had a retail store, seafood carryout, a traditional Maryland style, focused mainly on blue crab, um, but also all, all the other different types of fish around the bay. Ran that for 23 years and an effort to maximize our value from our product. Blue crab was our main, main staple, our main, main um, fishery. And we caught a lot of blue crab, but starting in, in the early 80s when I came, when I got, went full time, 82, 83, from that point, the fishery began to decline and really, really got in really desperate shape by the mid 90s. And I started looking around at, for solutions, did some work with um, Environmental Defense Fund, was brought in by the state of Maryland to try to look at sustainability in the blue crab. And we looked at different uh, programs. At the end of the day, we did get some, some cutbacks on the blue crab and, and efforts to, to make the, the fishery more sustainable, but not really to the point where we had, had, everything, had the answer. So what um, was uh, what was contributing to the the decline of the blue crabs? Is that was it the I know the Chesapeake is known for for water quality issues, especially back at that time. But it was over harvesting water. What what were the the pieces that were going into that? All, all the above, without a doubt, is water quality. You know, loss of habitat due to SAV losses and things like that, which is very critical to the crab. Obviously, you know, may, maybe climate change has something to do with it because it's very critical to bait up here on the Chesapeake to crab spawn at the mouth of the bay. And, and one, one weather event can, can ruin an entire generation of crabs. And that's all changing, as we know. But overfishing probably is, is a bigger factor as any. And what, what I didn't realize when we were looking at trying to figure out a way to stabilize the blue crab fishery is that the, one of the biggest reasons why the blue crab fishery was in bad shape was because we lost our oyster industry, which was the foundation of the entire seafood industry started back in the mid-1880s, 1800s. And um, it was a $50 million industry on the Chesapeake um, in, in the mid, mid to late 18, in 1870, 1875. It was a $50 million industry in, in 1875 dollars, employed 40,000 people. And uh, we quickly overfished that that, that fishery um, within 25 years had had fished it out 50 percent. And, and well, but at, over those years we we built an incredible infrastructure to support that fishery. And once that that fishery went away, and then the infrastructure was left with no product or reduced product, then that infrastructure had to look for other other means to to stabilize it. And that was the blue crab. And, and so we started hitting the blue crab hard in the mid in 1950s and, and, and up through the 60s and 70s. By the time we got into the 70s, we got very efficient with the blue crab. We had, had created a uh, infrastructure, a marketing infrastructure in the uh, mid-Atlantic cities, Philadelphia, Baltimore, New York, um, had a tremendous appetite for the blue crab. So, so it, it, ironically enough, we basically did the same thing the blue crab that we did to the oysters except by taking by at this point in time we had a very very sick bay the oyster we we, we had taken out our filter feeders the main environmental stability that the bay needs in order to stay healthy and then and, in, and the industrial revolution brought on the pollution sure. and the overpopulation so we we found ourselves in a very very bad bad place and by the by the turn of the 20th or 21st century here 
And um, he, so, so to get back to my story, after learning all of that and really looking into it over those five or six years, um, focused just on blue crab, not even look, really paying any attention to the oyster industry because at that point in time, we hadn't really had a oyster season for 25 years. 2010 got us to a place where the Amal administration decided to take a new direction for the oyster industry and, and really get focused on leasing grounds on the bay to, for oyster aquaculture. At that point in time, we had developed a lot of good science and we had developed a, a triploid disease-resistant oyster, Virginica, that was, was having very good success. I was asked to come to a meeting one night and had nothing but blue crab on my mind at that point in time. What came out of that meeting and it got me thinking and really started assessing why we were in such bad shape with the blue crab. And what I came up with within about 24 hours is that the answer was not the blue crab directly, but it was the oyster industry that had caused us all the problems that we were into. And, and that there will be tremendous opportunity if we could figure out a new way, a new, new way to do the oyster industry. So from that point, I, I pretty much just made up my mind this is what I was going to do. And I founded a company called Herpers Island Oyster Company. And uh, along with a, a lifetime friend here of mine. And we started that company and to grow oysters. And at that point, no one was building any equipment. No one was really doing any, any nursery work or doing anything with seed growth or development. So we had, to, we, had to, we had an opportunity to build a company that was able to create, be a foundation for the infrastructure for a new uh, direction for the oyster industry based on sustainability and marketing opportunities, year-round production of oysters. So it kind of answered all the questions and all the problems that we ran into with trying to figure out a way to fix the, the crab industry. And, and instead of doing that, why, why shouldn't we just build a new foundation under the entire seafood industry on the bay? So you, you invested heavily and built out this business based upon growing oysters, selling oysters as a, as a food product. And there's the, the, subsequent cleaning of the bay that begins to take place with, with those filter feeders. Exactly. Um, and so the leap that I think is really interesting is the nutrient problem in the bay. Mm -hmm. What did, what did the government decide to try and do to fix that nutrient problem? And so we've had, we've, we've, had, we've had a, a problem on the bay for, for decades and it's from overpopulation and, and um, irresponsibility really. But we have a tremendous amount of nitrogen and phosphorus going into the bay off of impervious surfaces, farming operations, homeowners, you name it. It's six million people on the watershed of the bay, and it starts at the Canadian border and all the way out on the other up to the Appalachians uh, from the Potomac perspective. And, uh, and it comes down to the bay. So, and this, this problem promotes algae um, blooms and, and then the algae is over fertilized and overfed and um, creates cloudy water, which impedes sunlight for SAV. And, you know, we've got an, an, a disaster on our hands. So a lot of, a lot of the problem with that was, is when, when we hit the shores here in the, in the uh, 1600s, our bay uh, had enough oysters in it to actually filter the entire volume of the Chesapeake Bay once a week. And, and so once we take those out, that's our kidneys of the, of the Chesapeake. And those animals are eating that algae that is, that is running rampant at here today. So, so that you can see that this causes a major problem in, in the balance of our, of our environment, of our ecology. 
So when I, when I looked at why are the oysters all gone, and what I figured out is, is that they're gone because they were of tremendous value um, to, to the people. And so if we can figure out a way to revitalize that industry and to do that in a way that's, that's incentivized um, by economy, and then, that, and then we can actually bring in those folks who actually co- contributed to the demise of the bay unintentionally, and that's the discharges around the bay, to be able to do a service for them by way of our oysters, to, to be able to su- support them with nutrient credits, which is the program that the state of Maryland and Virginia has put in place. It's a market-based solution to clean water. And it came by way of the Clean Water Act that was in, and, and, um, imposed by the Obama administration that says that by 2025, we've got to meet benchmarks on nitrogen and phosphorus and all the folks who hold a permit to discharge in the bay have to operate under those mandates. And if they can't um, take care of getting their discharge cleaned up, then they've got to go to someone who can help them and buy credits to, to uh, make their, their permit just. So, so we've, we've seen that, that system be pretty successful in New England with a, a Reggie program around carbon emissions, right? It's a, a cap and trade program. And so you can basically create the most cost-effective way to get the reductions that you want in carbon. And it sounds like that's what they're trying to do with nutrient loading in, in the Chesapeake. Am I, am I understanding that correctly? That's exactly right. And so it turns out that the mitigation business on, in the United States, which really uh, took hold in 1998, was the first federal laws that were approved um, to go in this direction, is a $20 billion industry across the United States. So this is really nothing new. As far as nitrogen, nitrogen and phosphorus goes, the, the main way that this has been done is removed is by planting trees or do streamline restoration or wetland restoration to create mitigation banks. But the problem with that is, is that once that's done, then that land that those projects are done on is, is, is shut out and closed down forever. And and so, and and we've only got so much land, we can't take over our farmland and all of our forest land for that. So the cool thing here is, is that oysters are measured and quantified at the time of harvest according to their size. And so it's a direct mitigation. So we, we know by the size of the oyster based on science, how much nitrogen and phosphorus that oyster has in it. We measure it, quantify it, and report it back to Department of the Environment. Department of Environment approves it, our numbers, and then Department of Natural Resources verify those numbers because those farmers have to report to, the, to that department also. And, and at that point in time, those credits can be sold to to a a, a a customer who needs to to mitigate their their offsets. So uh, so what this what this does is bring in another layer of revenue to the farmer, which will further enhance their ability to put more gear and, and grow more oysters, and and then the infrastructure will will come to life from that point once these oysters start heading the shores. Are are you? Uh, able to talk at all about the price points and how that actually can help the businesses or is that a trade secret? No, it's not at all a trade secret. You know, the price points vary according um, to what what type of credits they are. There are going to be what we call annual credits, which is basically credits that come from a aquaculture process or a program. And then there will be perpetual credits 
um, that will come from uh, projects that are more like a restoration um, project. In other words, uh, building a mitigation bank that will be in place for perpetuity. Those credits are of much higher cost per pound because they can be a 20-year credit or a 30-year credit. So it, it ranges anywhere from $150, $175, all the way up to $1,200, $1,500 per pound for nitrogen, and $1,000 per pound for phosphorus, all the way up to, you know, there's, there are some cases where they're $20,000 per pound for phosphorus. So it, it's, a, it's a business that is coming to life here on the Bay. I, I truly believe that what we're doing on the Chesapeake with nutrient credit trading by way of oysters will set will set the standard around the world. And I, not only do I believe that, I know it because I'm already being contacted from around the world on what we're doing. There was an expert panel that was assigned to this task to, to do the science and set this up in 2015. And so we're working from the recommendations of that expert panel, the, leader, the, the, the smartest people in the world around oysters and how they contribute to the environment by taking out phosphorus and nitrogen, being able to measure and quantify that. So this is totally legit and, and it's, it's definitely taken on and becoming mainstream. Well, that's, uh, that's pretty incredible. And it's so great to see some, some watermen, some fishermen leading the charge on this type of efforts because, you know, you guys are, are the, the front line of knowing what's happening in the, the marine environment and mm-hmm. whether it's you know, nutrients or climate change or, or other changes that are coming and, and happening, you know, I, I really think that those solutions, if they can be driven by those that are on the, you know, with their boots on the or decks of boats or on the docks or in the mud, you know, those are durable solutions mm-hmm. because people are bought into them then. And, and so I, I've just been really inspired by, by learning about what you guys have been aspiring to down in the Chesapeake. So, you know, the watermen and the fishermen of the world are, are the world's best entrepreneurs. I've always said that. What, what we're able to do, most people could, would not be successful at. And the spirit that we carry as commercial fishermen gets us that. And the love of the environment and of, of everything that we touch, we're, we're basically very passionate folks who are very resilient and very entrepreneurial. And... So, so what I did from, from my perspective is, is that I'll always be a commercial fisherman. What, but what we're doing is, is we're looking at every opportunity that we, we, we have. The, the commercial fisherman community has taken a very big hit in the last 20 years from the environmentalists. And because we've been accused of doing a lot of bad things to, to the fisheries and to the environment and, and such. You know, I think that's the case everywhere, but it certainly is the case here on the Chesapeake. So if we can figure out a way that we can build economy and show that we're no longer wearing the black hat, but we're, we're going to take the black hat off and put the Chesapeake Bay Navy back to work and not only to harvest seafood and not to take away from Mother Nature's um, bounty, but to contribute to it because we are... We are starting with the, with the moms in the pots and we're making the eggs and, and, and we're growing the oysters. Not only are we growing oysters for the meat, but we're also, we're also manufacturing the shell, mm-hmm. which is a uh, very valuable commodity for restoration work. I'm and then sure. we're taking that shell and we're putting, it, putting the work to, to, uh, 
to remove nitrogen and phosphorus, and we're selling that. And we're, we're, we're just, and we're doing this, and at the same time, rebuilding a new foundation under the entire seafood industry, uh, which will enable the other fisheries to prosper. That is uh, really inspiring, and I think it's a great example for all of us to be thinking about as we are trying to deal with climate mitigation, as we're trying to deal with pollution mitigation, as we're trying to figure out how to address some of the um, most pressing issues of our times when it comes to the natural environment. So thank you for taking the time to chat with me today and uh, sharing some of your experiences, and we really look forward to following up and and seeing how you do over the next couple of years and, and watch this expand. So thank you, Johnny. Okay, thank you. Maine Coast Doc Talk is a production of the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association, an industry-based nonprofit that identifies and fosters ways to restore the fisheries of the Gulf of Maine and sustain Maine's fishing communities for future generations. For more information about our work, to make a donation, or to listen to previous episodes of Doc Talk, you can visit our website, maincoastfishermen.org.